There are over 15 billion stolen passwords out there on the dark web, and those are just the ones that we know about. And even if your own computer doesn't get hacked, all those different websites you use, do you trust every single one of them? The criminals are going after them too. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. According to Forbes, Cyber attacks on corporate networks went up by 50% in 2021 as compared to 2020. Meanwhile, 43% of all data breaches involve small and medium-sized businesses. What is currently being done and what could be done to thwart these escalating cybersecurity threats? Meet Sherry Davidorf, founder and CEO of LMG Security in Missoula, Montana, described by the New York Times as a security badass. Because of her background in ethical hacking at her alma mater, MIT, Sherry is known as Alien in the cyber sleuthing world. After outing herself as Alien, she became the subject of the 2019 book, Breaking and Entering, the extraordinary story of a hacker called Alien, which profiles her adventures in the world of data breaches and digital forensics. A sought after global security expert, lecturer and author, Sherry has her finger on the pulse of the ever-evolving world of cybersecurity and data breach response. On today's episode of Can Do, Sherry will share her experiences with the human side of cybersecurity and will tell us what everyone needs to know about the threat that touches us all. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Welcome to the show, Sherry Davidoff. How have you been? I've been great. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast, as always. Well, the last time you were with us, it was almost three years ago. And last year, we had 2,000 data breaches or more. There were 500 million attempted ransomware attacks. What's going on now? And what's the difference between when we talked the last time and today? Well, first of all, we need to figure out how to hack time. I cannot believe it's been three years. Um, But also keep in mind, number one, none of these statistics are real. Right. Right. Everything you see in the news, like where are people getting their information, even these fancy companies, like where is the data being collected? And frankly, the majority of security incidents that we see are never reported. I can tell you, we handle forensics cases day in and day out where companies have been hacked and everybody's trying to keep it as quiet as possible. Right. So just remember, for every case you see in the news, there's probably hundreds more that never hit the news. So it's that bad or worse. And how does that compare when when you were here three years ago? 
You know, it's interesting. I think part of this is not that there's necessarily more cybersecurity incidents, there's more hacking, but that it's more visible today. Um, some of the trends we're seeing, number one is in cyber extortion. And that's actually, that's what my upcoming book is about, ransomware and cyber extortion. Um, over the past several years, we've seen that really ramp up where hackers lock up all your files and hold them hostage. And then at a certain point, hackers realized, hey, People are uh, starting to have good backups, right? Everybody's realizing they need to have backups in place. It's important. And as defenders started to put those measures in place, attackers needed to, to innovate and to use new tactics. You know, there are entrepreneurs as well. So we started to see an increase in what I call exposure extortion, where they steal your data and then they dangle it out there over the cliff of the internet and threaten to drop it out into public view unless you pay a fee. And as part of that, they're trying to build relationships with journalists and the media. A lot of these uh, ransomware and cyber criminal gangs actually have a section on their websites for media. Journalists can register and they will put out their victims' names before the data is released as part of the way that's part of the way they put pressure on their victims. What that means is that number one, the victims are aware that they've been hacked. Most of these victims would probably never know they've been hacked unless the criminals told them, hey, we broke in and stole, stole the data. And that's what they're doing now. And then second, they're notifying the media so that the public is aware as well. And that is a huge change uh, from when we last talked three years ago. So they're brazen enough to do all of that. Are they getting caught? Are they getting arrested? I mean, what's happening to them? If they're that exposed, if they're out there, you know, showing off and strutting their stuff, so to speak, are they getting caught? Yeah, great question. Very timely too, Ernie. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the news about hackers getting arrested. And every time it happens, it's like a huge media sensation. You probably saw that the Rebel ransomware gang in Russia was arrested recently, 14 members of the Rebel ransomware gang. And there was a lot of publicity about that. And that was clearly done with the support and cooperation of the Russian government. You know, they're kind of throwing us a bone here. So, um, however, most of the time criminals do not get caught. It's actually really hard to track them down and to hold them to justice for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, most of the time they don't get caught. And that's part of why it's a viable business model. And is there a region in the world where they are aggregated more than other places, the hacking organizations? I mean, not necessarily. If you look at places where there's uh, extensive IT skill, and Russia is a great example of that, where you have a lot of people that are educated in science and technology, um, and then yes, you're going to have a lot of hackers. I can tell you at LMG, we handle ransomware cases on a regular basis. You know, we, we have new ones in all the time. And uh, we definitely see indications that some of the criminals are native English speakers. Um, based on the timing of their messages, <laughs> there are cases where we believe that they're based, you know, on the Pacific Coast, or uh, sorry, in Pacific time on the West Coast or things like that. So um, you definitely see it all around the world. Now, there are certainly some countries that are, are havens, you know, where it's almost like, you know, it's tacitly implied that it's fine to hack the United States or it's fine to hack countries around the world. Um, we also regularly see malware that will not infect uh, computers that are set with the Russian language or things like that. So we definitely see a lot of um, organized crime and financial groups out of Russia. You see some nation state attacks out of China. You know, the names that you see coming up more often. We've seen business email compromise rings coming out of Nigeria, actually. Um, but certainly it's, you know, there's hacking consultants all around the world. Well, you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned the evolution of it and the fact they have websites and they publish who they've hacked 
before they've even hacked them. Are there business models now for hacking companies? Oh, absolutely. And there always have been. I mean, I've been in the industry for 20 years. And when I first started, it was cybersecurity was a nascent industry. You know, there weren't really like companies doing the defense uh, or not a ton of them. Um, and really, the cybersecurity industry has evolved with cybercrime. As the cyber criminals ramp up, as uh, the entrepreneurs start to hire other people, they get processes in place, um, and they get more effective then defenders need to ramp up as well. But today, uh, one of the big trends we've seen since we last talked, Arnie, is uh, franchise models. So you have software that's ransomware as a service. You've probably heard of software as a service. Now there's ransomware as a service where criminal gangs can license access to this ransomware, these ransomware platforms or cyber extortion platforms. And um, the, they pay a fee and then they are able to deploy ransomware much more easily. Uh, we saw in the fall the leaked Conti Group playbook. So Conti is an infamous ransomware gang, and they've actually produced a playbook, like a step-by-step -step set of instructions for hackers that they circulate to all of their affiliates. Affiliates is kind of the, the common word for those that are running these little franchise operations. Um, so that's kind of how the business model works today. And uh, one of the reasons why I anticipate we're going to see more data exposure is because it's cheap and effective. So there's better ROI. So instead of having to break into organizations and actually deploy ransomware, deploy software, and then, you know, basically provide customer support for the victims as they try to encrypt it, all they have to do is steal a bunch of information and threaten to publish it. And so there's pretty good ROI on that for criminals. And that's why we're starting to see that ramp up. So there's this growth of return on investment, the ROI, this franchising going on. Mm -hmm. um, and let me get this straight. So some larger hacking group hacks into a bunch of um, companies and maybe they don't have the capability to act on all the data they've gathered. So they're licensing to franchisees access to companies' data that they've already hacked. Is that what's going on? Well, it's actually more specialized than that. So there's uh, a specialized role, an initial access broker. So the hackers that break into your computer, um, they're going to sell that access to other cyber criminal groups in a lot of cases. That's Those are what the initial access brokers do. That's what they specialize in. They don't specialize in deploying ransomware. They don't specialize in monetizing your data. All they do is break into hundreds and thousands of computers and then peddle that access on the internet. And so some cyber criminal gang will browse through the listings and say, I want access to this person's computer for whatever reason. And so that type of cyber criminal will break in. They might do an appraisal and figure out like, what do you have on your network? Are you a business? Are you a person? Am I going to just steal your information quietly? Am I going to hold you hostage? Um, and then they may choose to sell access to someone else. So you have to remember, by the time you've been hit with something like ransomware, there may have been multiple organizations in your network already. Um, and that's really just the last phase. Very sophisticated. The average person would have no idea of how deep the penetration of these organizations are and how well organized they are. 
you know, the other thing I think is interesting, and all this evolves naturally, you know, we're, we're business people. Um, so where there's an opening for a type of, of uh, for someone to make money, someone's going to step into that role, right? It takes a little time, but it's going to evolve that way. I think one thing that's interesting that we've been seeing on the dark web are third party extortion companies, essentially, or third party data leak marketplaces. So for example, there was a site on the dark web called Marketo. They uh, advertise themselves as a data leak marketplace. And so criminals that hack into organizations and steal a bunch of data don't have to do the extortion themselves. They can actually outsource that to Marketo and Marketo will attempt to quote, sell it to the victims. So basically tell the victims, hey, pay us or we're going to give it to somebody else. Um, and then they'll auction it off. Uh, they will also email competitors there. They, again, they have very standardized processes. Um, they actually provide weekly notifications to their partners at news and media companies and also regulatory agencies. And that puts additional pressure on the victims. Um, they will use our laws and regulations against us. They will threaten to, uh, to notify regulators unless you pay the fee. And so as we're making policy, it's really important for us to keep that in mind. This is all incredible and wild. I mean, it really is. You mentioned that you've been in the business for 20 years. So refresh our listeners a little bit about your background and, and the work of LMG Security. Yeah, so I started off on MIT's network security team. I think it was actually 21 years ago. Um, and I was just looking for like an odd job in college. I'm a night owl, so I wanted to stay up late. Um, and they said, we're looking for people who want to stay up late and eat pizza, and they needed folks to monitor the network. So I started doing that and working in incident response is what we call it in the industry at that time. Um, and from there, I ended up moving to the Boston Children's Hospital right when HIPAA first came out. And then fast forward to 2009, um, I started LMG, a consulting company, and we've been going ever since. We break into companies and write reports about it. So we, we're penetration testers. Um, we also do incident response. So if you get hacked, you can call us. We'll come in, clean things up, handle the investigation if needed, um, and provide any support for your legal team if you have one. We also do compliance, which is a very fast paced uh, area in cybersecurity right now. Um, and then we do training and education. So. And how long, how large is LMG? How many people are, are working for you? We're about 35 people. We're headquartered in beautiful Missoula, Montana, the cybersecurity hub of the United States. <laughs> um, but like you, we're out here, it's beautiful. Uh, but we work all over the country and in fact, all over the world. So let me get back to something you mentioned, and I want a clarification for our listeners. There's always talk about this you know, ominous dark web, right? What is the dark web? So the dark web is a part of the, a way of accessing systems on the internet where you cannot be identified. It provides anonymity. So if someone is watching network traffic, like an omnipotent being or an internet service provider or the government or something, they can't connect the person that's surfing the dark web with the server. There's anonymity behind it. So that is the goal. And a lot of people don't realize that it doesn't necessarily provide confidentiality inherently. It's anonymity anonymity. Um, the basic tools for, for the dark web were actually written by some of my college roommates at MIT. Um, and it was funded in part by the Department of Defense and the EFF and some other organizations. So it's also important to realize that the dark web is, um, is a tool and it can be used for good or evil, just like cars and guns and other things. So there's very legitimate reasons why you might want to protect anonymity, like journalists, for example, intelligence agencies, um, 
um, just people who want to have freedom of speech in countries where uh, internet use is regulated, or you and me, like we might want to protect our privacy and not have marketing companies necessarily track us or mine our information. Those are all very legitimate reasons to want to use uh, the software underlying the dark web. Of course, these same tools can also be used for crime, unfortunately. And so that's what we've seen today. And it is the criminal uses that tend to make the news. You know, remember, all of our statistics are skewed. No one's going to report on the fact that you and I are using uh, dark web technology to protect our privacy. Um, it's always the criminal cases that are, are more interesting for people. And again, for our listeners, what are the differences or the nuances between ransomware attacks, data breaches, cyber extortion, data exposure? What, what, is, what, what are the you know, qualitative differences between all of those, that terminology? Sure. So I'm a specialist in cyber extortion, and that's where criminals will uh, try to threaten the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of your information resources um, in order to profit in some manner. Um, and so we see that happening in a variety of ways. With ransomware, they're threatening the availability of your data. So they're locking up your data and making it so that you don't have it. Um, we've also seen, as we talked about, a rise in data exposure extortion, where they're threatening the confidentiality of your data unless you pay a fee. And there are some ways that we can prevent that from happening. You know, the big picture is that we want to reduce the attacker's leverage. So have backups so that you can still get access to your data. Um, and then when it comes to exposure extortion, you know, there's other countries uh, and other, other areas of the world, like Europe, where if data gets released, um, the data subjects, you and me, actually have some recourse. We can say companies, hey, uh, you're using my data. I want you to forget that data. I want you to remove it. We don't necessarily have that recourse in the United States. And so here criminals have a lot of leverage. We also stockpile information. Uh, everyone's like, ooh, this data is valuable. Let's hoard it. And it's kind of like stockpiling hazardous material. Again, data is very powerful. And um, we probably need to learn to stop hoarding data and let some of it go because there is risk associated with stockpiling information. So that, that kind of covers cyber extortion. I'll pause there and we can go into some of the other topics once you're ready. What about malware? Malware. Malware uh, comes from the Latin mal for bad and ware for software. I made that up. I don't actually know that it's Latin. Um, <laughs> yeah. Malware is any kind of bad software. Lots of different kinds of malware. You can have uh, adware, which pops up ads. You can have spyware, which quietly logs your keystrokes and spies on you. Ransomware is a type of malware. It is software. And one of the big misconceptions is that, um, you know, you get these gangs that are engaging in data exposure extortion. And people say, oh, they're a ransomware gang. Technically, that's not the case. Now you will know more than your friends. You can say, well, that's not ransomware. That's just information exposure, unless they're actually deploying software that locks up all your files. You also, Arnie, asked about the term data breach. Should we touch on that topic? Sure. Let's tell me about data breaches. Yeah. So my second book is actually called Data Breaches, Crisis and Opportunity. And data breaches is a legal term. One of the challenges here in the United States is that a breach is defined differently in all 50 states. So you don't know right away if you've suffered a data breach. Typically, it, it relates to uh, the idea that information has been exposed or accessed um, without authorization. But again, it's, it's a legal term. Um, 
if you think you, you have suffered, if you've been hacked, you don't want to say I've had a breach because that could be used against you in court. Potentially you want to say I've had a cybersecurity incident until you know, for sure it's a breach. And again, one of the challenges in our country is that um, there are these data breach notification laws that obligate us to report data breaches. But in order to understand if they apply to you or if you've suffered a breach, you often have to engage attorney an attorney and conduct an investigation, which could cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, so many, many people don't do that. And uh, it kind of quietly gets swept under the rug. And that's part of why we don't have good statistics. Um, cyber insurance can definitely help with some of those costs. I would definitely recommend that. And there are commonly available cybersecurity insurance uh, programs or, or uh, products? Absolutely. Cyber insurance has become a fairly mature industry. And this is the first year I've really seen them uh, kind of speaking with a unified voice about risk management. So you have many organizations that have had cyber insurance policies for several years now, and they're now being told, you need multi-factor authentication. You need a better patch management system and some other checkboxes that they need to check in order to get affordable insurance. So are you telling me that the gold of cyber security attacks by and large are, are financial gain. They're not more focused on harming, you know, the, the business or the company or harming a country by, you know, getting into the, uh, you know, the electricity grid or something like that. Great question. Um, so studies have shown, like the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, um, studies have shown that the majority of attacks appear to be financially motivated. And that makes sense. You know, criminals need to make a living just like you and me. Um, so that said, you know, there's everybody, there's so many people in the world, you're 150 milliseconds away from every psychopath on the planet, as um, one of my colleagues, Dan Gear, has said. And so you do get criminals that are trying to embarrass an organization or are hacking for nation state purposes or are playing the long game. Um, for example, we do see nation states that will just try to get access to as many organizations as they can and worm their way into everything. And then at a later date, they'll actually use that access, or maybe they're just quietly stealing information. So there's, there's all kinds of reasons why people might engage in hacking, but the majority appear to be financially motivated. And those attacks, I read somewhere that uh, a hospital like Providence had a security attack of some sort and ended up paying $4 million, you know, to get it cleaned up. So how does that transaction kind of play out that, you know, the ones that you have experience with? So are you talking about a $4 million ransom payment or? Yeah, $4 million ransom, $4 million ransom payment. We are regularly seeing multi-million dollar ransom payments, um, frankly, because the cost of uh, cleaning things up without a decryption utility, remember, they're trying to, in most cases, buy access to the decryptor um, in, in a lot of these cases. So uh, sometimes the cost of losing all that data, let's say tens of thousands of patient medical records going back 20 years, if they lose that, that would be extremely damaging to the community. Um, we've also seen cases like the city of Atlanta or Baltimore, where there was a choice not to pay the ransom. And, you know, in those cases, the ransom demand was relatively low at the time, 50 to $100,000 in Bitcoin. Um, and the cost of cleaning up was tens of millions of dollars. 
So um, you can really see for the victims that it can save money and time and heartache to just pay the ransom. And that really puts everybody between a rock and a hard place. I've also seen cases where businesses will go out of business unless they're able to get up and running quickly. If a business is out for two weeks, um, then that can significantly damage their operations. And so you really have to take that into account. The city of Baltimore is unlikely to go out of business. And so it's for municipalities, it's less of a risk. So in essence, what you're saying is a cyber attack that's financially oriented is they break into, let's say, a hospital's database, they encrypt all the information, and they want to charge a ransom in order to get that information back to normal. That is a typical ransomware attack, yes. Um, and remember, there's probably multiple actors involved at, at this point. So you've got the initial access broker that'll break in. They might sell that access to the ransomware criminals who will then deploy ransomware and conduct the extortion. Are these extortion requests typically uh, uh, verbal ones or are they, uh, you know, are they digital ones? Um, I like that you called it a request because <laughs> they do <laughs> use language like that. They, many of the people who are kind of the front lines um, of these conversations, many of the, the attackers are actually just employees of the organized crime group. So they're often very polite. They appear to be customer service oriented. They sometimes ask for feedback about how they've done. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, we, we frequently see written uh, requests <laughs> for ransom payments, um, but we also see voicemails, uh, emails, lots of other methods. And if you want, I can actually play you a voicemail from a criminal. That would be fantastic. All right. So what you're about to hear is a voicemail that was left by a ransomware gang on an executive's voicemail system. This was a professional services company. They provided services to clients. Um, and so let's hear what the criminals had to say. Hello, Mr. I'd like to notify you that we've downloaded 500 gigabytes of your data from your servers. If you're planning to just restore your data, Without paying for decryption, we'll sell your company's private data on Darknet. Unless you contact us ASAP, we'll notify all of your clients that we're in possession of their private data, like socials and tax forms. We urge you to get in touch with us using the email from the text file we've placed on your desktop. If we leak that data, your business will be as good as gone. We're looking forward to receiving your reply via email. So what you just heard is a classic exposure extortion case where they're threatening to leak information. Um, otherwise, the business will be as good as gone. So this really is designed, they're using very psychological tactics. Um, the criminals are probably reading from a script. Again, these are business operations, and often they, they do not appear to be native English speakers. This is completely wild, you know, listening to this and hearing what you're saying about what's going on. How many people you estimate are working now in these organizations? Oh, I couldn't possibly say. Again, this is an area where we really don't have good employment statistics. <laughs> um, but I can tell you a lot of that, a lot of, uh, there. there's many different roles that people can play. There's the people that write the software used for ransomware as a service. There's the people that write new exploits that are constantly being updated. There's folks that are essentially working in call centers and talking to victims. There's folks that are involved in deploying ransomware. So, And there's the initial access brokers, as we talked about. There's public relations teams 
teams where all they do is work with the media and build relationships with journalists. So there's web developers that are building these sites on the dark web, including auction platforms. So you have a whole economy, I call it the hacker economy, that is based around cybercrime. And you can actually go online and apply for a job in one of these companies, can you not? You sure can. Yes. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are job advertisements for these cyber criminal groups, but sometimes they're not upfront about the fact that they're engaging in cybercrime. They really compartmentalize. Um, in fact, there was a really good article about this recently where an agent, um, an investigator uh, went undercover and actually applied for this job. And there was like a first round interview. And, you know, then they're, they're, they actually put him through his paces and did a little test run where they were like, here's an organization. Your job is to collect this type of information. And so they give him access and he's supposed to like expand his access through the organization and collect various types of information. So they don't necessarily say, hello, we're engaged in cybercrime, um, but they do break down those tasks and employ people to, to uh, do pieces of it. I'm speaking with the founder and CEO of LMG Security, Sherry Davidoff. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana RailLink, committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. So in a state like Montana, you know, what types of businesses, organizations should be taking protective measures? And what are those measures that you can take to, you know, to try to, you know, shield yourself from as much of this as possible? Sure. I mean, that's like asking a doctor uh, who should take measures to improve their health. I mean, the answer, of course, is everybody. Everybody does need to be thinking about cybersecurity. Don't think that you're not a target just because you're on an individual or you're a small business. In fact, um, attackers will often hack small businesses because you don't have the same level of, pro as, of protection as a large organization that can have their own security team. The good news is that there are specific things that you can do to protect yourself, and they're generally pretty easy. The vast majority of hacks occur for a couple of common reasons. Number one, they've stolen your password, and they're going to try that password everywhere they can into every single website. You might not know they've stolen your password. You might use LinkedIn, and they've hacked into LinkedIn. This has actually happened, and uh, they've stolen the LinkedIn passwords, and they're going to try those everywhere they can. LinkedIn was hacked back around 2015, 2016, and the LinkedIn database is still floating around the dark web. We actually have a copy of it here. Um, and often when an organization gets hacked, we'll go to that database and be like, oh, yep, they're using that password somewhere else. So this is a common tactic that attackers use because they know that people will reuse passwords or just minor variations on passwords. So one big thing you can do to protect yourself is number one, pick strong passwords. That's a long password. And uh, most importantly, these days, it should be unique. So if you have, a, you know, don't use the same password for your email that you use for social media or for a random e-commerce website or something like that. Probably the most important account you have is your email. Uh, your email is the keys to the kingdom, right? Your email can be used to unlock, to reset passwords to lots of other accounts, uh, to fool other people into allowing attackers to get into their systems as well. So you want to protect your email probably first and foremost, and then protect your other high value accounts by picking unique passwords. 
So I know what you're thinking, Arnie. You're thinking that sounds like a pain in the neck. I do not like none of us, none of us humans are designed to remember like 200 different passwords. That's where a password manager comes in. I highly recommend that everybody go out, get yourself a password manager. Some common ones are LastPass, Dashlane, OnePassword, and use it to generate unique passwords. They're cloud-based, so you can um, you it'll autofill passwords for lots of different websites for you, and then they're at least unique. And you want to use two-factor authentication to protect that, which we'll get to in a second. But any questions about passwords and how we manage them? No, but I do want to ask you about multi-factor authentication. I'm so glad you brought that up. Multi-factor authentication is the other really, really big thing that everybody needs to use. So multi-factor authentication means that we're using more than one method to verify our identity. So when you log into your email, if you just use a password and the criminals are able to steal or guess that password, guess what? They've just broken into your email. Um, however, if you also use a little app on your phone or a hardware device or whatever else is convenient for you, then even when, not if, they steal your password, they can't immediately get in. That's it. It's that simple. These days, there are very common apps that are free and easy to use, like Google Authenticator or Microsoft's Authenticator, if you use Microsoft systems. And um, you can turn those on and immediately benefit from that protection. So that is honestly probably my top, top recommendation for everybody. Turn on multi-factor authentication. It is free. It is easy to use, especially put that on your email and, and your online bank and any other really high value systems that you have and make sure that you're offering that option to other people that use your systems. I can tell you 90% of the time when we see a company that's gotten hacked, they're being held for ransom or data has been stolen, they don't have multi-factor authentication turned on for everybody. And the criminals have found those accounts that don't have it turned on and they've broken into them. You said something fairly onerous, which is not if you get hacked, but when you get hacked. So what's your thinking behind saying that? Well, I said, not if your password is stolen, but right. when your password is stolen. When? You should just assume your passwords are out there. Um, there are over 15 billion stolen passwords out there on the dark web, and those are just the ones that we know about. And even if your own computer doesn't get hacked, all those different websites you use, do you trust every single one of them? The criminals are going after them too. So you should assume sooner or later, your password will get stolen and make sure you have a second layer of protection. That doesn't mean you'll get hacked if you have multi factor authentication, you have that extra layer of protection and that will that will help prevent you from getting hacked. Okay. So Sherry, is there an interesting case that you can share with us while protecting the anonymity of the client? Absolutely. So um, I myself am actually really fascinated in organizational dynamics because every security problem is really a people problem, right? It's not so much a technology problem. And so um, one of my recent assignments is to work with a board of directors on just ensuring that we have uh, good communications and good visibility in security and um, we're overseeing security in a, an effective way. And I think that's a trend, you know, as more and more boards and leadership teams realize that cybersecurity is a business issue and not just a technology issue, we're seeing them get more engaged. And you deserve to have visibility into your cybersecurity risks. So make sure you know how much data your organization has, um, what kinds of data your organization has, and then what your major risks are. And then it's also good for boards, boards and leadership teams to be informed about what their cyber insurance coverage is, because that can also affect your residual risk. 
So Sherry, tell me about phishing emails. I get them all the time. I can I can tell the way I try to uh, thwart uh, responding to them is by checking to see the you know the the address it comes from. And if it's an address I don't know where it's got a lot of letters and numbers in it, I just I just delete it immediately. But but what's going on in that sphere? Yeah, so phishing emails are the other super common way that hackers break into your organization. It's really just phishing and passwords. And sometimes they're the same thing, right? Because they'll send out phishing emails and you click on a link and you go to a website and they'll use that to steal your password. It'll look like a normal website you use, but it's really not. First of all, you want to make sure not to click on links and phishing emails. Think before you click is what I always say. And if you're not 100% sure, just type the address in manually into the address bar. Same thing goes for attachments. If you're not 100% sure that it's a, an attachment you should trust, just don't open it. Just move on with your day. Or you can always call the person that sent it to you and make sure that it's a, a legitimate attachment. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people fall for those phishing emails and you have that spider sense. Like, you know that there's a problem. And right after they do, they say, oh, I think I clicked on something that I shouldn't have. So just take that extra moment, think before you click. But phishing emails are how hackers bypass the security controls of your organization. Most organizations have pretty good firewalls. The hackers can't just break in directly. So they're trying to go around by sending you an email. And then when you click on that or you, and you get your computer infected, your computer actually starts reaching out to the attacker. That's how they work. Well, one variation of all of this that I've seen some people fall for is a email you get that looks like it's from Best Buy or Amazon or somebody like that saying, we're processing a thousand dollar payment or we're processing a thousand dollar order. If it's not yours, please contact us. And there's a phone number. And if you continue to follow the process, basically they want to get your bank information from you. Yeah, beware unsolicited emails or unsolicited phone calls. We saw stuff like that a lot, especially around the holiday season. Also, like you have a package and it's been misdelivered, click here, and then they're trying to get information from you that way. So just don't trust any unsolicited emails. They always have a sense of urgency. They're designed to make you go, oh my God, I have to react. Think before you respond. There's so much going on. You know, all of the things that you've talked about just lead me to think, is there something that the U.S. government or global governments ought to be doing about this that they're not doing? Um, yeah, there are a few key things we could do. And I had the opportunity to brief the U.S. Um, Senate Committee on Homeland Security in the fall. And we did talk about some of these issues. I'd say, first and foremost, having a unified notification policy or law is really key um, because the fact that, it, you know, we talked earlier about how difficult it is just to determine if you need to notify someone that you've been hacked. So we really need to reduce the expense of doing the right thing and just clarify that and ideally have some kind of, you know, unified national standard. We'll probably still have different state standards. Um, the other thing is, uh, in my opinion, I think we need to incentivize people to report these. And right now, victims, if they do report or if the information becomes public, they essentially get hurt a second time um, because they know once that's public, they might get hit by lawsuits, there's reputational damage, and the criminals will use that against us. And the result of this is we don't know the full extent of the cybersecurity problem. Everybody's very hush-hush and quiet about it. So I think it would be very, it's very important 
important for our policymakers to think about how can they enable, facilitate private reporting? Um, how can we help organizations feel comfortable that that information isn't going to be used against them so that we can collect the data we need to understand the true scope of this problem? And you may have seen the new um, regulation, or sorry, backing up. You may have seen the new requirement for financial institutions and service providers to report certain cybersecurity incidents to their regulatory agency. I think that's a really good step forward and it's not overly burdensome. These are private reports. They're reports of issues that might affect operations. Um, so ransomware or, or lots of other issues that might not necessarily be directly related to hacking or cybersecurity. This rule does not create an undue burden on uh, the financial institutions or their providers because it's really just a simple notification. It's not going to be public. It's going to be private. And so it allows these agencies to understand and track these attacks and really assess the full scope. So it, it's beneficial. It will help us better protect our financial institutions um, without necessarily putting the financial institutions at risk of reputational damage or lawsuits or things like that. That's fantastic. Sherry, as always, it's fascinating and insightful and enjoyable speaking with you. And uh, thanks for joining me today. I love being on your podcast, Arnie. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when I'll talk with filmmakers behind Edge of the Plains, a documentary featuring some of Montana's most innovative entrepreneurs and craftspeople. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.